You've tuned in to the voice of the Narrated Puritan Podcast, a class on Christian experience and assurance in an analysis of conversions. This subject is Christian conversation, and we're going to look at such things as the stress laid by some on the knowledge of the time and the place of their conversion. In other words, if you don't know of the time and of the place, your conversion is suspect, and we want to show how erroneous that is. Archibald Alexander says, It is often a question among serious people whether every person who is a real Christian knows not only that he is such, but the time and the place of his conversion. It's a well-known fact that in many Christian denominations in this country, they differ from one another in their views of various doctrines and rites of religion. But the fact is not so well known that the religious experience of the individuals of the several denominations is as various as their doctrines and external forms of worship. To those who view these things at a distance and superficially, all Christian people who make a profession appear to be alike. And many, when they hear of a number of converted, take it for granted that they have all passed through the same train of exercises to whatever denomination they belong. There are some serious people, and they're well indoctrinated in the scriptures, who, while they hold a sound theory respecting the nature of the new birth, never speak of their own Christian experiences, believing that such exposures are not for edification, as they tend to foster spiritual pride and vainglory, and afforded a temptation to hypocrisy, which is commonly too strong for the deceitful heart. Among such professors, ye don't hear anything of conviction, of sin, prior to conversion. And when any of this class of people fall into a distressing case of conscience, which urgeth them to seek spiritual counsel, they always propose a case in the third person. They will talk to you by the hour and the day about the doctrines of religion and show that they are more conversant with their Bibles than many who talk much of their religious feelings. But there are two objections to this practice. The first is that it has the effect of keeping out of view the necessity of a change of heart. The second is that it is a neglect of one effectual means of grace. Christian conversation in which Christians feel tell of the dealings of God with their own souls has often been a powerful means of quickening a sluggish soul and communicating comfort. I'll say, for example, when I've studied the revival of Kentucky in 1800 down in Logan County, and one of the pastors was James McGrady, that revival started by a number of women sitting around and having a conversation of what had recently happened, that some had been awakened and some had been born again. And this led to the awakening of others. There's details to this account also in Jonathan Edwards' work called A Narrative of Many Surprising Conversions. Alexander says, It is in many cases a great consolation to the desponding believer to know that his case is not entirely singular. I get these kind of letters a lot. They think nobody's ever gone through what I am going through. If a traveler can meet with one who has been over the difficult parts of the road before him, he may surely derive from his experience some salutary counsel and warning. The scriptures are favorable to such communications. David says, Come and hear all you that fear the Lord, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Paul seldom makes a speech or writes a letter in which he does not freely speak of his own religious joys and sorrows, hopes, and fears. There is no doubt an abuse of this means of grace as of others, but this is no argument against its legitimate use but only teaches that prudence should govern such Christian conversation. The opposite extreme is not uncommon in some denominations, as where professors are publicly called upon, and that periodically for their experience, or where when professors are met it is agreed that everyone in turn shall give a narrative of his or her experience. Such practices are not for edification. There are, however, cases in which it may be expedient. It may be delightful for a few select friends to enter into a full detail of the dealings of God with their souls respectively. 
In a book we've already quoted here, Samuel Pike, in Samuel Hayward's case as a conscience, they answer the question, is it possible for a person to be regenerated or born again and yet for many years after fear that he is not? And may a person in no way doubt his regeneration and at the same time be an unconverted person? Answer to this, considering the mental circumstances of the regenerated person, that there remains a sin and unbelief yet abide with them, and that the best are greatly clouded with ignorance as well as liable to the bewildering temptations of deceitful friends. So we don't need to think it is impossible for a born-again person to be afraid that he has never experienced that gracious work upon his mind. It is observable that in their last distress, some of God's most eminent saints have been left to call into question the truth of their interest in Christ. And that is interesting, because when Christian and Pilgrim's Progress was crossing the river of death, he struggled so much for it, it's like all of his assurance temporarily left him, and he was in the dark and hopeful had to help him across. And then you have the case of some very good Christian pastors and others who write in their diary that in the end, they never had a really strong assurance of salvation. I can think of uh, Asa Hell Nettleton, but also Ralph Erskine of Dunfermline, Scotland. His sonnets and sermons are dear to the saints while both exist on the earth, and notwithstanding some of those defects which attend the best human compositions, they fully demonstrate his skill in the Spirit's work, in the new birth, and in sanctification. And likewise his doctrinal acquaintance with the person, grace, and righteousness of Christ. Add to this his eminent usefulness in the work of the administration of the word, yet when he came to his deathbed he was left in such deep desertion that all of his friends who attended to or visited him in his last days could hardly persuade him from this melancholy reflection, quote, that after he had preached to others he himself had become a castaway. And he continued in a sad and mournful condition until his friend thought he was past speaking. Then, when they least expected it, he lifted up his withered hands and clapped them three times, shouting, Victory! 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 I also find another northern worthy Samuel Rutherford expressing in his letters his fear that he was but a half a Christian, or like another King Agrippa, an almost Christian. A very interesting conversion in conviction prior to conversion, to answer some of the questions on what we are talking about today, is the conversion of Asa Hell Nettleton. And so I will quote from Bennett Tyler's biography. This is during his awakening. During this period, he read Jonathan Edwards' narrative of the revival of religion in Northampton and the life of David Brainerd. He served very much to deepen the conviction of his utterly lost condition. The preaching which he heard from time to time also greatly distressed him. As he says in his narrative, every sermon condemned him. Nothing gave him any relief. He seemed to be sinking daily deeper and deeper in guilt and wretchedness. One day, while alone in the field, engaged in prayer, his heart rose against God, because God didn't seem to hear and answer his prayers for conversion. In the words of the apostle, the carnal minus enmity against God came to his mind with such overwhelming powers to deprive him of his strength, and he fell down to the earth. The doctrines of the gospel, particularly the doctrine of divine sovereignty and election, were sources of great distress to him. He would sometimes say to himself, if I am not elected, I shall not be saved, even if I do repent. Then the thought would arise, if I am not elected, I never shall repent. This would cut him to the heart and dash to the ground all of his self-righteous hopes. For a long time he endured these conflicts in his mind. Meanwhile he became fully convinced that the commands of God are perfectly just, that it was his immediate duty to repent, and that he had no excuse for continuing another moment to rebel against God. At the same time, he saw that such was the wickedness of his heart that he never should repent unless God should subdue his heart by an act of sovereign grace. With these views of his condition, his distress was sometimes almost insupportable. At one time, he really supposed himself to be dying and sinking into hell. 
This is a time of which he speaks in his narrative, and he says, An unusual tremor seized all my limbs, and death appeared to have taken hold upon me. For several hours his horror of mind was inexpressible. Not long after this there was a change in his feelings. He felt a calmness for which he knew not how to account. He thought at first that he had lost his convictions and was going back to a state of total obduracy. This alarmed him, but still he could not recall his former feelings. A sweet peace pervaded his soul. The objects which had given him so much distress he now contemplated with delight. He did not, however, for several days suppose that he had experienced a change of heart, but finding at length that his views and feelings accorded with those expressed by others whom he regarded as the friends of Christ, he began to think it was at least possible that he might have passed from death unto life. The more he examined himself, the more evidence he found that a great change had been wrought in his views and feelings respecting divine things, old things had passed away. All things had become new. But what is interesting about this story, he never enjoyed for the rest of his life a real full assurance of salvation. It says, but although he enjoyed great peace of mind, he never expressed a very high degree of confidence that he was a child of God. He had such a deep and abiding sense of the deceitfulness of the human heart and of the danger of self-deception that not only in this period but ever afterwards he was exceedingly cautious in expressing his belief that he was accepted of God. At one time being asked whether he had any doubts respecting his interest and the promises, he replied, I have no doubt that I have religious enjoyment, but the question is whether it is of the right kind or not. And at another time, he said, the most that I have ventured to say respecting myself is that I think it possible I may get to heaven. It was always painful to him to hear persons express great confidence of their interest in the divine favor, unless they were persons of eminent piety. He feared they did not realize how deceitful the human heart is, end quote. In case number nine of Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward's cases of conscience, a question is posed. Is it Presumptuous for a person to hope that he has an interest in Christ when he sees little or nothing in himself except reason to doubt and to question it. This question came to me in almost these very words, and upon an attentive view of its nature and design, I could not but apprehend that a distinct solution of it would have a great tendency to convince a presumptuous and encourage a fearful. The inquirer asks, Is it presumptuous to persuade ourselves? Do we have an interest in Christ if the persuasion is contrary to the conviction of our own consciences? And sometimes this comes from a misapplication or misunderstanding of 1 John 3, verses 20 and 21. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence toward God. But the difficulty drawn from these words is to this effect, the distressed soul speaks this way. And how many things does my heart condemn me? What backwardness to my devotions to spiritual duty, what deadness and inactivity in the ways of God my heart convinces me of and condemns me for. I have these and many, many more things to lay to my own charge. How then can I have any confidence towards God, or how can I dare to hope in him or depend upon him for pardon and salvation? But if your conscience condemns you, as to the secret indulgence of and delight in any particular known sin, or as to the voluntary, stated, allowed omission of any known duty, and you endeavor to stifle these convictions and suppress or silence these rebukes of conscience by attempting to persuade yourself to Christ as yours, this is indeed truly and awfully presumptuous. But how very different is this from the case of someone who's great, whose chief desire is to be delivered from the power and practice of every sin, who sees and laments the corruption of his nature, the deadness of his frame and the carnality of his heart, and would gladly hope concerning an interest in Christ for his deliverance from these spiritual evils, and if this is the real temper of your soul, do not say, My heart condemns me, and how can I have confidence towards God? Rather say, My conscience does not condemn me, 
as to any allowed guile or indulged iniquity. For it is a real desire of my soul that God would search me and try me and see if there is any wicked way in me, and therefore I may with humble confidence go to God in Christ for pardoning and cleansing grace. End quote. Returning now to Archibald Alexander. It is much to be lamented that many persons who are fond of Christian conversation deal so much in cant phrases and assume they are so affected and sanctimonious. This is a thing which disgusts grave and intelligent Christians, and often occasions the wicked to ridicule or blaspheme. Let not your good be evil spoken of. Be not public nor indiscriminate in your communications of this kind. Take heed that you do not cast your pearls before swine. It is a fact that what passes for conversion in one denomination will be condemned as altogether insufficient in another. Very good point of Archibald Alexander, and I think about again the history that I witness in Grand Rapids, Michigan, between the Protestant Reformed churches, in which assurance was of the essence of faith, and the Netherlands Reformed congregations in Grand Rapids in which assurance of salvation was almost altogether suspect, unless on a very rare occasion you had this perfect what they thought was a morphology or detail of their conversion. Alexander says, It is a fact that what passes for conversion in a denomination will be condemned as altogether insufficient in another a few years since, there was what was called a great revival in a Presbyterian congregation in New Jersey. The presiding elder of the Methodist Society for that district, having classes of his church mingled with the people of that congregation, so you had two groups together, Methodists and Presbyterians. Well, the presiding Methodist elder had opportunity of conversing with a number of the subjects of this work or subjects of this awakening, and he gave it as his opinion to a person who communicated the fact to me that none with whom he spoke were converted, for he did not meet with one who would say that he knew his sins were pardoned. In other words, he had to know his sins were pardoned. On the other hand, many of the conversions which take place at camp meetings and other meetings where there is much excitement, though the subjects profess to know that their sins are pardoned, are not believed to be cases of sound conversions by Presbyterians, and they are confirmed in this opinion often by the transitory nature of the Reformation produced. We have known instances of persons professing conversion at a camp meeting and filling the camp with their rejoicing, who relapsed into their old habits of sin before reaching their own dwellings. In these strong excitements of the animal sensibilities, there is a great danger of deception. When feelings of distress are wound up to a very high pitch, there often occurs a natural reaction in the nervous system, by which the bodily sensations are suddenly changed, and this attended with some texts of scriptures impressed on the mind, which leads a person to believe that he was in that moment converted, when in reality no permanent change has been effected. It is one thing to be persuaded of the truth of the gospel, and quite another to be certain that I have believed, and that my sins are pardoned. John Wesley was for several years in the ministry and a missionary to America before he had any joyful sense of the forgiveness of his sins. And he seems to intimate that until this time he was an unconverted man and most of his followers make this joyful sense of pardon sin the principal evidence of conversion and one which all must experience. Most serious intelligent readers, however, will be of the opinion that John Wesley was as humble and sincere a penitent before this joyful experience is afterward, and that it is a dangerous principle to make a man's opinion of his own state a criterion of which to judge of its safety. Certainly, we should greatly prefer to stand in the place of some broken-hearted, contrite Christians who can scarcely be induced to entertain a hope respecting their acceptance, to that of many who boast that they never fill it out of their own safety. Men will not be judged in the last day by the opinion which they had of themselves, for this confidence that would seem never forsake some to the last, who nevertheless will be cast into outer darkness. 
Archibald Alexander says, In early life, the writer knew some high professors of his own denomination who could tell the day and the hour when God had mercy on them. Few men in later times appear to have arisen to greater eminence and piety than Henry Martin, a missionary. The strength of the principle of holiness in this case was manifested in his habitual spirituality of mind and constant exercise of self-denial. Yet, as far as is related, his incipient exercises of religion were by no means strongly marked, but seemed to have been rather obscure and feeble. The same is a fact respecting those two distinguished men of God, Philip and Matthew Henry, the father and the son. The early exercises of these men were not in any respect remarkable. Indeed, they both become pious when very young, and we rarely get a very distinct and accurate account of the commencement of piety in early life. But no one who is acquainted with the lives of these eminent ministers will deny that they grew up to an uncommon degree of piety, which in the experience of both of them, though characterized by genuine humility, was free from any mixture of gloom or austerity. True religion can rarely be found exhibiting so cheerful a mien and so amiable an aspect. And yet, with these men, everything became a part of their religion. To this one object, their whole lives were devoted. Jonathan Edwards writes in a narrative of many surprising conversions, quote, To calm a spirit that some persons have found after their legal distresses continues for some time before any special and delightful manifestation is made to the soul of the grace of God is revealed in the gospel. But very often some comfortable and sweet view of a merciful God of a sufficient Redeemer, or some great and joyful things that the gospel immediately follows, or in a very little time, and in some the first sight of their just asserts of hell and God's sovereignty with respect to their salvation, and a discovery of the all-sufficient grace are so near that they seem to go, as it were, together. The way the grace seems sometimes first to appear after legal humiliation is in earnest longings of soul after God and Christ to know God, to love Him, to be humble before Him, to have communion with Christ and all of His benefits, which longings as they express them seem evidently to be of such a nature as can arise from nothing but a sense of the superlative excellency of divine things, with the spiritual taste and relish of them, and an esteem of them as their highest happiness and best portion. Such longings as I speak of are commonly attended with firm resolutions to pursue this good forever, together with a hoping, waiting disposition. When persons have begun in such frames, commonly other experiences and discoveries have soon followed which have yet more clearly manifested a change of heart. The story about the conversion and the evidences of it to Thomas Halliburton from the year 1698 is instructive as well. He says, I cannot be very positive about the day or the hour of this deliverance, nor can I satisfy many other questions about the way and the manner of it. As to the things I may say with the blind man, one thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. It was toward the close of January or the beginning of February 1698 that this seasonable relief came. And so far as I can remember, I was at secret prayer in very great extremity, not far from despair, when the Lord seasonably stepped in and gave this merciful turn to affairs. When I said there was none to save, then his arm brought salvation. That which gave me relief was a discovery of the Lord. is manifested in the Bible. He said to me, you have destroyed yourself, but in me is your help. He let me see that there is forgiveness with him that he may be feared that with him are mercy and plenteous redemption. He made all of his goodness pass before me and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin. This is a strange sight to one who before looked on God only as a consuming fire, which I could not see and live. He brought me from Sinai and its thunderings to Mount Zion and to the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that cleanses from all sin. He revealed Christ in his glory. I now with wonder beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
and I was made by the sight to say, You are fairer than the sons of men. How was I ravished with delight, when made to see that the God in whom a little before I thought there was no hope for me, or any sinner in my case, if indeed there were any such, notwithstanding his spotless purity, his deep hatred of sin, his inflexible justice and righteousness, and his unimpeachable faithfulness pledged in the threatenings of the law, might not only pardon, but without prejudice to his justice or his other attributes, might be just even in justifying the ungodly. And the Lord further opened the gospel, called to me, and let me see that even to me was the word of this salvation sent. All this was offered to me, and I was invited to come and freely take of the waters of life, and to come in my distress to the blessed rest. He, to whom my great satisfaction gave me a pleasing discovery of his design in the whole, that it was that no flesh might glory in his sight, but that he who glories should glory only in the Lord. The Lord revealed to my soul the full and suitable provision made in this way against the power of sin, that as there is righteousness in him, so there is strength, even everlasting strength, and the Lord Jehovah to secure us against all our enemies. When this strange discovery was made of a relief in which full provisions were made for all the concerns of God's glory, in my salvation and subordination to it. My soul was by a sweet and glorious power carried out to rest in it, as worthy of God in every way suitable and satisfying in my case. All these discoveries were conveyed to me by the Bible alone. It was not indeed by one particular promise or testimony of Scripture, but by the concurring light of a great many seasonably set home and most plainly expressing the truths above mentioned. The promises and truths of the Bible in great abundance and variety were brought to remembrance, and the wonders contained in them were set before my eyes in the light of the word. He sent his word and healed me. End quote. Thomas Halliburton. Archibald Alexander says, it is amazing, or it is. Archibald Alexander says, when you got two persons who have been under awakening prior to conversion, and they're having a conversation about their convictions, their sorrows and their hopes, is it not to be expected that with the same truths before their minds, those of a sanguine temperament will experience more sensible emotions and upon the same evidence entertain more confident hopes than those of a contrary disposition? And of necessity, the joy of the one person will be much more lively than that of the other. The two persons may be found whose experience may have been very similar as to their conviction of sin, in the putting forth of faith and repentance, and yet, the one will express a strong confidence of having passed from death to life, while the other is afraid to express a trembling hope. Of these two classes of Christians, the first is the most comfortable. The latter is the safest, as being unwilling to be satisfied with any evidence that he is converted, but the strongest. The following story is from a narrative of a Christian experience of a man we'll call him R.C. It will serve to illustrate some points which have before now been treated, particularly the gradual manner in which some persons are brought to the knowledge of the truth. Any extreme difficulty of ascertaining in many cases where common grace ends and special grace commences. I grew up, says an narrator, to manhood with very little thought of religion and without experience in any serious impressions, except the alarm occasionally produced by the death of a companion or a relative. While I habitually cherished a great dislike to strict religion which frowned upon a life of pleasure and amusement, I entertained a strong prejudice in favor of Christianity in general, and that particular denomination to which my parents and ancestors belonged. I call this a prejudice, for I knew nothing of the evidences of the truth of Christianity, and had only a very vague and confused notion of what the scriptures contained except that when a child, I had read frequently many portions of the historical parts of the Bible. In this state of mind, I was exposed to the common objections of infidels, which arose from reading history and finding all nations had their respective religions, in which they believed as firmly as we did in ours, and the thought often occurred to me, 
why may not they be in the right? And we are in the wrong. But about this time, infidelity began to prevail, and it's a betters to be bold in declaring their opinions. My mind was so completely unfurnished with arguments in favor of Christianity that the only thing on which I could fix was, did it come down from my ancestors and the people with whom I was conversant generally believed in it? But this is far from satisfying my mind. I began to feel uneasy for fear that we were all wrong in our belief, but the thought was never pleasing to my mind. As to books on the evidences of Christianity, I knew nothing about them and cannot remember that I had ever heard of such works. And I was so situated that I had no one to whom I could apply for instruction. The only person with whom I had any communication on literary subjects was a gentleman who, though he said to me nothing on the subject was deeply imbued with skeptical opinions, being separated from the companions of my youth, in place in a secluded situation, where except on particular occasions I saw little company, and where there were few opportunities of hearing instructive preaching. I was cast upon my own thoughts, and my reflections were often not very pleasing. One day, it was the Lord's Day, as I was looking over some books which I had in a trunk, my eye caught the words, Internal Evidences of the Christian Religion. I'd often seen the same book, and never so much had thought what the subject of it was. But in my present perplexity, I seized it with avidity and began to read. The author was Saomi Jennings. I never removed from where I was sitting until I had finished it. And as I proceeded, the light of evidence poured in upon my mind with such power of demonstration did at the conclusion I had the idea of the room being full of resplendent light. I enjoyed a pleasure which none can appreciate, but those who have been led to the contemplation of the truth and like perplexing circumstances. Not only were all of my doubts removed, but I didn't want any more evidence. My conviction of the truth of Christianity was complete. I believe it could not have been increased. But still I knew scarcely anything of the method of salvation revealed in the gospel. I entertained a common legal notion of thousands of ignorant people. Did a convenient time, I would become good. Never doubting for a moment of my ability to do all that was requisite. The only thing which gave me uneasiness was a fear that I might die suddenly, which wouldn't allow me the opportunity of repenting and making my peace with God. But the hope prevailed that I should die a lingering death, and be in my senses, and then I would do all that was requisite to prepare me for heaven, while at the same time I had no definite idea what that preparation was. During this period, as I was exposed to few temptations, but still some sins had dominion over me. One day a child brought to me a small book and said that Mrs. T. requested that I would read it and return it soon, as it was borrowed. The title was Jinx, On Submission to the Righteousness of God. I read the book through at a single sitting, and again a new light sprang up in my mind. The author in the introduction gives an account of his ignorance of the true method of a sinner's justification. Until he had been for years a preacher, he was a minister of the Church of England. I now found that I likewise had been all of my life ignorant of the way of salvation, for I entertained the same legal and unscriptural notions which he proves to be utterly erroneous. Although these new views seem to have been merely intellectual, yet they afforded me a great satisfaction. I now had a distinct knowledge of the gospel method of justification which I ever afterwards retained. Another copy of this book I have never come across. The preaching to which I had access was mostly of a wild, fanatical kind, and the way in which I heard the new birth described tended to prejudice me against the doctrine of regeneration. I'd never before heard anything about this change, and yet I was sure that I knew some very good and religious people. I began to be troubled to know whether sober, intelligent Christians believed in this doctrine. 
It also became a subject of discussion in the little circle with which I was conversant, and I found that one person in the company professed to have experienced this change. Another was convinced of its reality, but professed to be merely an inquirer. A third was of the opinion that it related to the conversion of Jews and infidels, and that there was no other regeneration except in baptism. And a fourth was a skeptical gentleman already mentioned who was incredulous about the whole matter. In these conversations, I, being young and ignorant, took no part, but I listened to them with intense interest. I had recourse to such books as I had access to, but could find nothing that was satisfactory, for my range of Christian books was very narrow, and few of these of an evangelical type. The person of my acquaintance who professed conversion one day gave me a narrative of the various steps and changes experienced in this transition from darkness to light. As I entertained a favorable opinion of the veracity and sincerity of the individual, I began to think there might be something in it. Although I had experienced no remarkable change thus far, I knew that the subject of religion had become one of much more frequent thought and excited much more interest in my mind than formerly. One evidence of this was that I commenced secret prayer, a duty utterly neglected until this time except when some one of the family was dangerously sick. So I selected a retired spot, and I surrounded myself by a thick growth of trees and bushes on the margin of a brook. Here I made a kind of arbor, over a little plat of green grass, and in the summer evenings I would resort to the sequestered spot. It was on the afternoon of a Sunday. I was reading a sermon on the long-suffering and patience of God and waiting with delaying sinners, and so many things applied so exactly to my own case that I became so much affected with the sense of the divine goodness and forbearance in sparing me, and waiting so long with me while I was living in neglect of him that I felt impelled to go out and weep. I was reading a sermon aloud to the family by request. I laid down the book abruptly and hastened to retirement where I poured out a flood of tears in prayer. And suddenly I was overwhelmed with a flood of joy. It was ecstatic, beyond anything which I had ever conceived. For though I thought Christianity was a necessary thing, I never had an idea that there was any positive pleasure in its exercises. With this joy originated, I did not know. The only thing which had been on my mind was the goodness and patience of God, and my own gratitude. Neither can I now say how long it continued, but the impression left was that I was in the favor of God, and should certainly be happy forever. When the tumult of feeling had subsided, I began to think that this was conversion. This was a great change of which I had recently heard so much. It occurred to me when walking home that if this was indeed a change called the new birth, it would be evidenced by my forsaking all my sins. This suggestion appeared right and I determined to make this a test of its reality. All the evening my mind was in a delightful calm, but the next day my feelings had returned into their old channel. I was grieved at this, and resorted to the same place where I had experienced such a delightful frame in hopes that by some kind of association the same scene would be renewed. But though there was the place, and all the objects of yesterday, the soul-ravishing vision was not there, and after a feeble attempt at prayer and lingering for some time, I returned without meeting anything which I sought and desired. It was not long before I was subjected to the test which I had fixed. A temptation to a besetting sin was presented, and I had no strength to resist, but was instantly overcome. This failure gave me inexpressible pain on reflection. I did not know how dear were my cherished hopes until they were taken away from me. I never felt a keener regret at any loss which I ever experienced. Though I was constrained to admit that I was not a regenerated person, I was sensible of a considerable change in my views and feelings on the subject. I had no longer any doubt of the necessity of the new birth. 
and entertain some consistent notions of what its effects must be. I had, as I stated before, acquired evangelical views of the way in which a sinner must be justified, and entertained different failings from what I had formerly towards Christians. Formerly they were the objects of dread and aversion. Now I felt a sincere regard and high respect for the same characters, and was pleased when I heard of any of my friends becoming Christians, or more serious than they were before. I had now an opportunity of hearing an able pastor preach an evangelical sermon on the text, for our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and so on, and I cannot tell the gratification I experienced in hearing the doctrine of justification, which I had fully embraced, preached distinctly and luminously from the pulpit. But when I looked around on the audience, I had the impression that they were all, or nearly all, ignorant of what he was saying and were still trusting to their own works. It gave me pleasure also now to converse on the doctrines of religion, and I felt a real abhorrence of vicious courses. This is my state of mind when Providence cast my lot, where a powerful revival had been in progress for some time. I had witnessed something of this kind in a wild fanatical sect, where bodily agitations were common and violent. But this was a different scene. The principal conductor and preacher was a man of learning and eloquence, and his views of experimental religion, as I think, most correct and scriptural. If he erred, it was on the safe side in believing in the thorough conversion of but a small number of those who appeared impressed. In entering into the scene, I experienced various new and conflicting feelings. The young converts spoke freely in my presence of their conviction and conversion, but often with a degree of levity, which surprised me. In their conversations I could take no part, and although my general purpose was to consider myself an unawakened, unconverted sinner, yet when I heard the marks of being a true Christian laid down, and especially by the distinguished preacher before mentioned, I could not prevent the thought arising continually. If this is what a Christian is, if this is what the new birth is, I haven't experienced it. This seemed to me to be the suggestion of a false hope by the enemy to prevent my falling under conviction of sin. The idea was continually presented to my mind and with the appearance of truth. I took occasion to state the manner to the clergyman above alluded to as soon as I could gain access to him, for I was diffident and timid and never opened my case to anyone freely. I told him all my former exercises and stated distinctly that they had not been sufficient to break the habit of sinning to which I was addicted. As soon as I mentioned this part, he said in a peremptory tone, Then surely your exercises were not of the nature of true religion and you must seek a better hope, or you will never be admitted into heaven. This decisive answer drove away from that moment every idea of my being in a state of grace, and I felt relief from what I had myself considered a temptation to entertain a false hope. Now I begin to see conviction as a necessary preliminary to conversion, and hoped that every sermon which I heard would be the means of striking terror into my soul. I read the most awakening discourses. I went to hear the most arousing preachers. I endeavored to work on my own mind by imagining the awful realities of the judgments and the torments of the damned. I strove to draw the covering from the pit that I might behold the lick of fire and hear the wellings of the damned. But the more I sought these awful feelings of conviction, the further they seemed to fly from me. My heart seemed to grow harder every day. I was sensible of nothing but insensibility. I became discouraged, and the more because I was obliged to remove from the scene of the revival to a place where there was no concern about Christianity and the people generally, and where I expected the preaching to be cold and lifeless. I spent a day before my departure in secret in solemn reflection on my deplorable and hopeless case. I ran over all the kind dispensations of God's providence toward me, and reflected on the many precious means of grace which I had recently enjoyed without effect. The conclusion which seemed now to be forced on my mind was that God had given me up to hardness of heart, 
and that I never should be so happy as to obtain the new birth. This conclusion had in my mind all the force of a certainty, and I began to think about the justice of God in my condemnation, and no truth ever appeared with more lucid evidence to my mind. I fully justified God in sending me to hell. I saw that it was not only right, but I did not see how a just God could do otherwise, and I seemed to acquiesce in it as a righteous and a necessary thing. At this moment, my mind became more calm than it had been for a long time. All striving and effort on my part ceased. In being in the woods, I recollected that it was time for me to return to the house, where I expected to meet up with some friends. Here I found a minister waiting for me, whom I had seen but never spoken to. He took me aside and began to represent the many privileges which I had enjoyed and expressed a hope that I had received some good impressions. I told them that it was true that I had been highly favored, but that I had now come to a fixed conclusion that I should certainly be forever lost. For under all these means I had not received the slightest conviction without which my conversion was impossible. He replied by saying that no certain degree of conviction was necessary, that the only use of conviction was to make us feel our need of Christ as a Savior, and appealed to me whether I did not feel that I stood in need of a Savior. He then went on to say, Christ is an advocate at the right hand of God and stands ready to receive any case which is committed to his hands. And however desperate your case may now appear to be, only commit it to him and he will bring you off safely, for he is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. Here a new view broke in on my mind. I saw that Christ was able to save, even me, and I felt willing to give my cause into his hands. This discovery of the bare possibility of salvation was one of the greatest deliverances I had ever experienced. I was affected exceedingly with a view which I had of this truth, so as to be unable to speak. Hope now sprang up in my desolate soul. Not that I was pardoned or accepted. Such a thought didn't even occur to me, but that it was yet possible I might be hereafter and I was resolved never to give over seeking until I obtained a blessing. All that evening I was sweetly composed, and precious promises and declarations of the word of God came dropping successfully into my mind, as if they had been whispered to me. I never could have believed, unless I had experienced it, that the mere possibility of salvation would produce such comfort. About this time next morning, probably when I retired to the woods, where my secret devotions were usually performed. I experienced such a melting of heart from a sense of God's goodness to me as I never felt before or since then. It seemed as if my eyes, so hard to weep commonly, were now a fountain of tears. The very earth was watered with their abundance. Indeed, my heart itself seemed to be dissolved, just as a piece of ice is dissolved by the heat of the sun. Of the particular exercises of this melting season, my memory does not retain a distinct recollection. For some months I attended to religious duties with various fluctuations of feeling. Sometimes I entertained a pleasing hope that I was indeed a Christian, a renewed person. But at other times I was not only distressed with doubts, but came to the conclusion that I was still in my sins. The only thing which I deem it important to mention during this period was a deeper discovery of the wickedness of my own heart. This conviction of deep-rooted, inherent depravity distressed me much, but I obtained a considerable relief from reading John Owen's work called A Treatise on Indwelling Sin. This book exhibited the state of my heart much better than I could have done so myself. Still, however, I was much dissatisfied with myself because after so long a time, I'd made so little progress. On one occasion, at the close of the exercises of the Sabbath day, I was so deeply sensible that my soul was still in imminent danger of perdition that I solemnly resolved to begin a new and vigorous course of engagingness to secure my salvation. I'd spent much time in reading accounts of Christian experience and those which lay down the marks and evidences of true religion, such as John Owen on the grace and duty of being spiritually minded, Jonathan Edwards on a treatise on the religious affections, William Guthrie's trial of a saving interest in Christ, and John Newton's letters. 
Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward's cases of conscience, and so on. I also converse much with old and experienced Christians as well as with those of my own age, but all these having, as it then seemed to me, very little facilitated my progress, and evils of my heart seeming rather to increase, I hastily resolved to lay aside all books, except a Bible, and to devote my whole time to prayer and reading until I had experienced a favorable change. In pursuance of this purpose, I withdrew into a deeply retired spot where I knew I should be free from all intrusion from mortals and began my course of exertion with fasting and strong resolution never to relinquish my efforts until I found relief. For five or six hours, I was engaged alternately in reading the scriptures and attempting to pray. But the longer I continued these exercises, the harder did my heart become and the more wretched my feelings until at length I was exhausted and discouraged and began to despair of help and was about returning from my chosen retirement in gloomy despondence when it occurred to me with peculiar force that if I found I could do nothing to help myself, yet I might call upon God for mercy. Accordingly, I fell down before him and said little more than is contained in the publican's prayer. God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. But this I uttered with a deep and filling conviction of my utter helplessness. The words were scarcely out of my mouth when God was pleased to give me such a manifestation of his love and the plan of redemption through Christ has filled me with wonder, love, and joy. Christ did appear, indeed, to me as altogether lovely. And I was enabled to view as my Savior and to see that his sufferings were endured for me. At no time before had I the full assurance of being in the favor of God, but now every doubt of this was dissipated. I could say for the first time with unwavering confidence, my beloved is mine and I am his. And this assurance of God's favor arose not from any suggestion or impulse directly to my mind, but from the clear view that Christ as a Savior was freely offered and from a conscious assurance that I did truly accept the offer. I now opened my Bible and began to read the 18th chapter of John and onward. Every word and sentiment appeared glorious. I seemed to be reading a book which was perfectly new, and truly the sacred pages seemed to be illuminated with celestial light. And I rejoiced to think that the sacred scriptures would always be read in the same manner. How little did I know of the spiritual warfare! After my feelings had a little subsided, but while the glorious truths of the gospel were still in full view, I made a formal and solemn dedication of myself to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And having writing materials with me, I wrote down the substance of this covenant and subscribed it with my hand. I now believed assuredly that I was reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, but being naturally inclined to be suspicious of myself, I resolved to make the Holy Scriptures a test of the genuineness of my exercises, and to leave the final determination to the fruits produced. As our Lord says, by their fruits you shall know them. I remember that it was written that faith works by love and purifies the heart. I hope, therefore, that I should now be delivered from those evils of the heart with which I had been so lately affected. But alas, in a few days I found that the old man was not dead, but had power to struggle in a fearful manner. I must acknowledge, therefore, that after a few weeks I was much in the same spiritual condition in which I was before this remarkable manifestation, end quote. Archibald Alexander edits, Here the narration breaks off abruptly. It will not escape the notice of the attentive reader that in this account all circumstances are avoided which could lead to the discovery of the writer. He says, I believe it is that the writer is still alive. Well, we hope that this edition of this class on Christian experience and assurance has been helpful for you, and that you see the sovereignty of God and the variety of person's conviction of sin prior to conversion and how the conversion itself manifests itself. This is the voice of the Narrated Puritan Podcast. Thank you for tuning in.